new listeners and seasoned listeners. It's the learning curve and it's the, oh my goodness, Mike Bloomberg and Federal Charter School grant program edition of the learning curve. Um, or not, because uh, if you watched the debates last night, no one really said a word about charter schools or schools, at least when I was awake. Uh, but Gerard, how are how are you doing? And did you do your civic duty last night and watch this latest um, exercise in American democracy? I am doing well, and I did participate in watching. Uh, there were some exciting moments that had a lot to do with how much money people make. But as you mentioned, little focus on what can we do to prepare the millions of school-aged children to, in fact, become the next set of employers, employees, billionaires, millionaires, moms and dads. So I didn't expect much uh, because, you know, right now it's all about uh, the guy, let's say the mayor from New York, but it would be great to hear more conversation about the role of uh, learning and earning, because no matter who's in the White House, we do not want our children to be in the economic outhouse. You think? Oh, I like that. I like that. I mean, you know, call me call me a single issue voter, but I would just like just even give us give me something to hang on to people. I want to hear a little bit about what we're going to do. What did you say? You don't want our children to be in the outhouse. That's a good one. Um, but. My next question for you, Gerard, is when exactly are you going to consider running for president? I will never we're all consider. Waiting. No, <laughs> you, you should stop waiting right now. No, I will can not we, run. Can we force you? <laughs> nope, you can't force me. First of all, I don't have enough money to run. Uh, that's number one. And more importantly, that's not my calling. But I do appreciate that very fine and funny uh, comment. Well, I think you have more than one vote from people listening to this podcast. But okay, here we go. Stories of the week. So we get to we to shift gears a little bit. We are not going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about a different kind of politics, I guess. So uh, this week in the New York Times, now, and, and I know I talk about my kids too much, but you know, I, I do have one, I have a 10 year old and I've got one in kindergarten and I've got one still in preschool. Oof, uh, it's, you know, it's, I'm an old mother. I'm a tired woman, but they're great. But we think about reading all the time, right? Parents, young kids, we're thinking about reading. How do we teach reading? How are they doing in reading? Will they read? And this week in the New York Times, uh, an old, the title of the article is An Old and Contested Solution to Boost Reading Scores, Phonics. So I saw the headline and I thought, okay, here we go again. The reading wars are back. But the fact of the matter is, I think if we're honest, they never really went away, right? And so this article highlights sort of the renewed fervor around how American schools teach reading, especially in the wake of consistently disappointing NAEP results. So of the last NAEP test, as of the last NAEP test, we learned that only about a third of American students are reading at proficiency. That's that's huge. A third. That's I mean, that's not huge is what it is. That's a huge finding that that scores are that poor. So so what do we do? Some are saying that we need to start going back to or relying upon the science of reading. And in my mind, this is otherwise known as how like most parents intuitively teach their kids to first recognize their letters and then their words. Like if you're thinking about, you know, what it is you read, looking at the alphabet with your kids and sounding out words. Um, but, but it turns out what this article does a good job of explaining is that in schools, um, 
there many schools are avoiding this approach or at least de-emphasizing this approach in favor of what, at least when I was a kid in the 80s, it was, I think it was called whole language and mm-hmm. now it's balanced literacy, right? So the argument against phonics from some is that, hey, it's really boring um, and we're just like, all we're doing all day long is phonics. And that also maybe it's setting too low of a bar for some kids and that we're not reading to them and we're not exposing them to, to deep and wonderful literature. So, and on the one hand, you've got these cognitive scientists and psychologists and experts that are saying, listen, the evidence that a phonics approach works is about as, according to one, according to Mark Seidenberg at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, is about as close to conclusive research on complex human behavior as you can get. Yet on the other side, we're not teaching teachers how to do this. My parent brain, my former teacher brain says, it's probably not either or. It's probably like, yeah, we really need a base in phonics, but also let's read great literature to our kids. What do you think, Gerard? I'm a big proponent of reading literature to children. I am a big proponent of literacy in general. I often stay more on the sideline as it relates to whole language versus phonics. A, while I understand it from a policy perspective, I understand it having to, uh, let's say, weigh in on some of these discussions at the state level regarding our own standardized tests for students. Uh, So I'm going to let the researchers really weigh in on this. Where I fall in is that I do see a relationship between literacy and learning, and I also see from my work in the criminal justice system, the number of adults who are incarcerated who are unable to read above an eighth grade level, but in many times a high school level. And so when you have state prisons, California, where at least uh, a study recommended or acknowledged that possibly 70% of the people did not finish high school, a lot of that is a literacy challenge. And so for me, I see the residue of what we've let down in terms of our promise to families, taxpayers, and others about the importance of education. Too many students have gone through school uh, unable to read, unable to comprehend uh, texts with any comprehension, and that's a challenge. And so I'm for what works. I also understand one size does not fit all, but I'm glad that we're having this conversation again and again. Yeah, I mean, it, it just keeps resurfacing. I have, so you, you mentioned your work on criminal justice reform, and you mentioned what we know about um, many folks who end up incarcerated not being able to read and, and having not having had exposure to the kind of education that's going to give them what they need to be successful academically. I'm, I'm really curious to know, because you have been a secretary of education and an education commissioner, you know, we've got a couple of states here. So Mississippi has been getting a lot of attention lately because of its NAEP scores. But Mississippi has also put in place some very serious um, uh, new reading, well, modeled on Florida, in fact, where, where you worked, um, literacy, approaches to literacy, basically saying, like, if kids are not able to, um, to reach proficiency by a certain grade level, they're going to be held back until until they are reading on grade level because one of the things we know is that if you can't read well uh, by third grade or if you can't read at a third grade level by the time you're in third grade, um, I think as you've pointed out, right, you're going to have a really hard time being academically successful, period, let alone just in, in reading because literacy is the foundation. How do you think about this topic or how do you think about um, using the research as you we're implementing policies, or if you think about the kind of policies you would advocate for or accept when you were when you were running state policy um, situations. So go back over a decade, and there was an error 
uh, an era when governors made really big pushes to be the education governor. Uh, governor Jeb uh, Bush, for example, in Florida is one example. Uh, he's the one who really pushed the idea that third grade literacy was important. Uh, he did so based upon research. He did so based on talking to teachers and others. And Florida, in fact, has a uh, third grade holdback policy, which I had to uh, implement at one point and even had uh, uh, to have a conversation, a tough one with some family members and others who said, we just don't think it's fair. Now, to be very clear, there's a summer program that's put in place to bring students up to uh, par and some of them actually receive the requisite skills and training and can move on with their previous grades. Others are held back. I'm not going to say it's an easy decision. The number of people who said, well, listen, I'm going to be bullied because I was held back a year. That's probably true. And I know, in fact, it's happened. Uh, I know some people have said bad things. But imagine being an 18-year-old being bullied because you can't read. Well, what hopefully we can do is get you ready third grade, fourth grade, and moving forward. It's not an easy answer, but it's a policy that I support, and it's one that uh, often isn't supported by a lot of people, but it has my support. When you think of Mississippi, it's often, uh, uh, no pun intended, the butt of many jokes. We always say we're glad we're not Mississippi. Well, here's some good news out of Mississippi. Not only do you see an improvement uh, with their scores in reading, but there's also a story behind that. The National Board for Professional Teaching Standards in Washington, D.C. is the organization responsible for certifying national certified board teachers. And these are some of the best teachers in the country uh, in his or her craft, and they're certified. Well, their leader, Peggy Brookins, also a former teacher, in fact, from Florida, uh, she's working with the leadership in Mississippi to say, hey, you can pass all the legislation you want. Hooray. But until we make sure we give the teachers in the classroom the training, the support, the investments they need, it's going to be tough to make a lot of uh, movement in this area. So as we talk about Mississippi, let's also just pay attention to the role the National Board for Professional standard, uh, Teaching Standards are playing in this role, because I think the Mississippi miracle that will come out over time, they've got their thumb in this work as well. Yeah, no, that, that's, I think that's right on. It's not just about one single policy. It's about all of these things that work together, all these moving parts, and we can never, ever discount the importance of teachers. And that actually goes <laughs> to our second story of the day from the Washington Post entitled, Students Failing, Teachers Fleeing in Maryland Calls for Sweeping and expensive education reforms. So um, this out of the Washington Post is an article that describes, so student results in Maryland are on the decline and they the state has indeed seen one of the biggest decreases in reading and math on the most recent NAEP results. Um, and so on, on top of this, they're seeing teachers, they're saying they're having a hard time finding teachers that um, actually want to teach. So they're having, you know, teacher pipeline issues, et cetera. A lot of states are experiencing this, but a particular concern in Maryland and being linked by an education commission to some of the declines that they're seeing in student performance. And so this education commission was tasked with figuring out like what, what's going on. Let's look under the hood, Maryland. And they've come up with some, with some Sweeping, as the article says, recommendation. So they're calling for legislation that would, number one, expand early childhood education for three and four-year-olds. So so that I say, yay, if it's good, right, if it's high quality. Um, And would also raise standards for teachers, which, oh, man, someday we'll have to do a whole episode with Learning Curve, Gerard, about the chicken and the egg problem with teachers. If we raise standards, if we lower standards, how do, if we, if we don't have enough teachers, what's, what's the approach that we take? 
Um, but this legislation also is proposing more things like dual enrollment programs. It's proposing additional interventions for students who fall behind, more supports for students with disabilities. Bottom line, my read of this is that at least in this article, sort of the teeth of the recommendations, the the what they're really going to look like, how they're going to be implemented well with fidelity, what the what what we expect in terms of outcomes, how are we going to know if it's working, are unclear. But one thing we do know is that there is a call to pour a lot more money, billions and billions of dollars um, from the state into into school systems, but also that local school districts, some of which are um, huge, struggling. Um, Prince George's County, I believe, one of the largest school districts in the country, serving uh, lots of kids with diverse needs. They're also going to have to pony up more local money. So there's a part of me that says, on the one hand, I love this story because it's, to me, it's like transparency and accountability at work, right? NAEP was supposed to shine a light mm-hmm. on how we're doing, and it's shown the light, and we're seeing a reaction. I just can't tell what what fruit, if any, this reaction is going to bear. What's your take on this? Commissions have been an important bellwether for conversations about change. And it kind of reminds me of what uh, David Tyak and uh, Larry Cuban in their book, Reform Again and Again and Again. Well, if I can borrow that, this is commission point two again and again and again. And I don't say that in a facetious way, but I understand the importance of commissions what we often don't do is then tell the people on the ground level, the taxpayers, the families with children in schools, the businesses, the faith-based leaders, you have to own the commission recommendations. It can't just be the state board of education or the local board of education or the superintendent. Yes, they absolutely matter. But you as the stakeholders have to get involved. So when you, list, when you put together a laundry list of things in there, I think most of us would agree with it. The question is, if we're saying we want to spend more money, great. But often money conversations are only a revenue conversation. Very little do we talk about expenditures. We know that there's research to point, does money matter, not matter. I believe money matters, but I believe how you invest it, when, where, and why matters a lot more than we think. So I'm glad the commission's out. You know, I know some of the people in that state who are trying to do some great things whether it's uh, our friends who are at the uh, John Hopkins Institute for Education Policy, David Steiner and Ashley Berner, or whether it's the work that's coming out of uh, some of the think tanks, whether it's the Maryland Public Policy Institute, or whether it's, you know, you know nonprofit organizations. So I'm glad it's out there. I just really wish the stakeholders would say, this commission, we're going to own, not just the media. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And yeah, you cite some really great help that they could be getting on the ground. Okay, well, in just a moment coming up, we are going to talk to somebody who who probably has a lot of opinions about the policies that we're talking about right now, but we're going to talk to her very specifically about charter school policy. She is Margaret Mackey Raymond of um, the Center for Research on Educational Outcomes at Stanford University. Up next. All right. 
right, listeners, we are back and we are very excited to have with us today Margaret, also known as Mackie Raymond, who has served as the director of the Center for Research and Educational Outcomes, otherwise known as Credo or Credo. I'm sure Mackie will tell us what she prefers since its inception. Um, she has really steered this group to national prominence as a rigorous and independent source for policy and program analysis. Mackie's done extensive work in public policy and education reform. She's currently researching the development of competitive markets and the creation of reliable data on program performance. Many of you will know Mackie because she leads Credo in investigating the effectiveness of public charter schools. Prior to joining Stanford in 2000, she held faculty positions in political science and economic departments at the University of Rochester. And Mackie also worked for a number of years in the telecommunications industry, was president of Raymond Associates, a private consulting company specializing in public policy research projects and telecommunications policy formulation from 1985 to 2000. If I can actually speak today, Mackie, I'd like to say to you that we're so happy to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, well, we're delighted to have you. Lots to talk about. And as you may know, or as we hope you know, you know, this is, um, we talk a lot about charter schools here on the learning curve, Lots, a lot about different forms of school choice. So having you on to talk about some of the great research that you and your team have done and, and what we've learned over the years through your great work is is really um, a win for us. So we're, we're excited to dig in. I want to start with a question about sort of how um, how the work at your center is viewed, um, because people on both sides, and I think this is probably the hallmark of strong research, I guess, um, like to just, so that means both people who really like charter schools and want to see more of them, and people who oppose charter schools and maybe want to see fewer of them, uh, like to cite your work with sort of equal authority. So, and I think that's because um, you've been really honest and transparent about the situations and where charters have been really successful and charter policy has been successful in situations in which in which charters aren't doing as well as advocates would like. How do you how do you navigate this and can you tell us a little bit about why you think the work is so equally attractive to both sides of the debate? Well, great question to start us off. Thank you for that. Um, we have uh, as a real strong value in our research group, uh, which is uh, a group of about 10 people here at Stanford uh, working on this uh, charter school research, we have, a, we have two things that we believe. One is that we're not pro or anti-charter schools or district public schools. What we are unequivocally for is great schools for all kids. And so that puts us on a footing of, of being an equal opportunity nudge we are uh, absolutely happy to uh, celebrate success where we see it, and we are equally content in calling out uh, places where a lot of improvement is needed. And so with, with that lens, um, our operating mantra is that we let the data speak. We try to do as much as we can to get our own um, preconceptions and assumptions out of the analysis that we do and just place the evidence in front of people. We trust that people are intelligent and reasonable and, and armed with evidence. They will, they will take that forward into the policy debate. Our expectation is not that we will convince opponents to, to change their ways or, or get supporters to change their attitudes. What we're trying to do is to actually put a floor in on the debate that's grounded in what the numbers actually tell us. 
Can you tell us a little bit, Maggie, about about what the data that you all have have analyzed and released so far really do say about charters nationally? And in that, I'm wondering, too, if you can describe Credo's approach, because you guys are really looking at you're looking at charter sectors, but you're also um, able to do something with your approach that's that's rather difficult, which is tell us something about sort of charter schools more generally, even though charter schools exist under so many different sets of laws and, and, and regulations. Can you tell us about the approach? Sure. So, so first off, um, <clears throat> we are very fortunate that we are able to partner with a, a large number of state education departments in states where charter schools operate. And what that means then is that we are actually uh, under these agreements to use their their data, we are actually able to see 100% of the students in each of those states. And that gives us an opportunity then to be very specific about how we make comparisons about what happens to kids in charter schools and what happens to kids in public district schools. The, the way that we do our work is that we do a very, very careful matching uh, approach that says for every single student in a charter school, we're going to go and find kids who look exactly like them, including what their sort of starting uh, academic endowments look like. And we're going to compare essentially pairs of twins. And so we, we use this very careful methodology so that we are absolutely certain that we're isolating the effect of what the charter school contributes to how much learning a student makes in a year's time. Uh, that's a different approach than many other researchers use. Uh, and because we do this very precise matching methodology, um, we're actually, and we do that wherever we look at charter schools, we are able to produce findings that um, are consistent both across states and over time. And so what the body of research actually gives you then is essentially uh, a number of different readings about charter schools uh, starting as early as 2005, 2006, and as soon as we finish our next national study all the way through uh, to the current time, individual start charter schools and how they are able to help or hinder the, the academic progress of students. Now, Mackie, if we were in an elevator and I knew nothing about charter schools, but I asked you, mm -hmm. how do they perform? Like, so, so what, do, what do I need to know? Should I send my kid to a charter school? What's, what's your answer in, in short about just ch what we know about charter, pro charter school performance nationally? Sure. Um, if you were just to throw a dart at a dartboard and pick a school and send your kid to it, on average, charter schools do slightly better uh, than traditional district schools uh, on average. But around that average, there's a really big distribution of quality. And so my, my caution is the same as I caution any parent who asks me about schools in general, which is you need to really pay attention to the particular school and figure out whether that school is actually high performing or not. Because even within the same community, the charter schools that exist can be preponderantly good or have some that are not performing as well. Uh, just because it's a charter school doesn't guarantee that they are a high quality uh, education establishment. Having said that, uh, the great thing about the charter school sector is that we, uh, we get to see uh, the places where charter schools actually significantly outperform the education that their students would have gotten in their local district schools. And there we see that urban charter schools are really 
performing much more strongly than urban public district schools. Uh, we also find that that there are a number of charter management organizations that have really cracked the code in terms of being able to figure out how to educate kids, even from extremely disadvantaged backgrounds, and do that consistently over time, and be able to replicate that model across dozens and dozens of other schools. So from the charter school sector, if you're able to find a high-performing school or a high-performing charter network, um, you can often find a local education option that is far better than the district schools. Okay. Now, before I let my friend Gerard jump in here, because we're talking about some of these real pockets of excellence in the charter school sector, and I'm sitting up here in what is today very cold Boston, Massachusetts. (laughs) (laughs) I I really want to know for you. So like I actually, for Pioneer Institute, I wrote a book about our high performing charter sector and it wasn't all about high performance. Um, It was about some of the other features of Massachusetts law and my own take on, on where we've come, where we've been, where we're headed. I'd like to know, though, so you guys have, you, your organization has pointed out that Boston's charter schools, on average, are, are pretty darn high performing. Some have called it the best charter sector in the country. I think others might argue with that. What do you think are some of the lessons when you, when you step back and look? What are some of the lessons that you learned from sort of how we do things in Massachusetts or maybe what's going on in these small places with pockets of excellence? Sure. Well, um, I, I have no problem giving a really strong shout out to the charter schools in Boston because every time we look at them, uh, the average charter school in in the Boston area um, moves a student forward almost an extra year of progress. So almost two years in a year's time. That's a staggering achievement. Uh, compared to what students in the district schools would be able to do. So we think that there's a lot of value in looking at Massachusetts and looking at Boston in particular. From the schools, I think you can learn about good organization and practices and instructional um, opportunities. And in the policy world, I think it's a fascinating set of questions because Massachusetts has one place that is in charge of overseeing all of the charter schools in the state And they have really committed both uh, programmatically and also mission-wise that they're going to get very good at this particular business of of overseeing charters. And so that function is called authorizing. And the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education has the division of charter school authorizing within it. And they just knock it out of the park. They are very consistent They have policies and procedures that make it very clear to everybody how high the bar is if you want to open a school, how much you have to work to reach that bar, and they don't compromise on that. They're not subject to a lot of the political variants that a lot of other charter authorizing bodies have. But they're also completely unapologetic when it comes time to review the performance of charter schools at the end of the term that they're allowed to operate. And if the schools aren't doing well, they're not going to be making deals. They're very clear about what the standards are for renewal as well. And so in spite of all of the political um, firestorm about charter schools in the last few years in Massachusetts with with Proposition 2, the, the actual work of running a really strong, solid charter school sector has been going on in the background, incredibly strong practice and instru- incredibly strong results. Yeah, well, I have to say, as a as a board chair 
of a charter school here in Massachusetts uh, that has gone through that renewal process and that is experiencing some difficulties. Uh, I think you are right on with the quality of the process and the fact that there is no compromising. It's it's quality or they are going to uh, tell you when it's not. So I, I agree with that assessment. I'd like to hand it off to Gerard, who I know has some burning questions for you as well. Mackie, thank you for joining us. Hi, Gerard. I'm originally from California, so it's always good to hear the voice of someone from the West Coast where it's a little warmer. I'm in, uh, in Virginia today and glad to be here. So you, you, you did a great job of talking about charter schools and particularly Massachusetts. Um, I'm a charter school founder. I was also a charter school authorizer, so I've seen some of the good, bad, and the ugly. Within, mm. within the charter school movement today, there's a split between those who support getting many kids into charters as fast as possible. And there's those who prefer charters grow slower and with greater quality. What's your take on the internal charter authorizing debate that's taking place right now in the movement? Sure. Well, so I would love to answer this by starting with the extra wide angle view, which is that uh, at this point in time, charter schools are not enjoying uh, the kind of greater policy support that they've enjoyed for the last 25 years. And I'm using policy support as a very distinct difference from popular public opinion support, because public opinion is still strongly behind charter schools. About two-thirds of, of typical people think that charter schools are, are a strong option. They like the idea of choice. They like the idea of the flexibility to try new things and so on. But in the policy and political environment, uh, charters are really sort of up against it. And if you've watched what happened last year in the California state legislature, um, they were beaten soundly about the head and shoulders by the legislators um, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, and so against that backdrop, I think the, the earlier practice, which was let a thousand flowers bloom and we'll clean up the mess later if they're not doing well, just it, it's not politically viable at this point. I think you don't really have a choice but to grow carefully and with quality uh, because there are too many individuals and, and organizations that are looking for opportunities to pick up, um, pick up the, the fight and, and, and criticize the movement for, for not being consistently high quality. Oh, absolutely. It is interesting you mentioned California in part because you go back to the early 90s when you had a Republican governor, Pete Wilson, and a Democratic lawmaker, Gary Hart, who supported charters. It was very bipartisan. And then today in California, it's, it's very different. Just to follow up. No, you were going to say something. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, your history. Yeah, I try to try to keep abreast of some of that great work and uh, to think today that there's a big backlash. Uh, in the, in the uh, Golden State's unfortunate. You know, one of the criticisms that are pretty common about charter schools is that they take very few special education students, very few English language learners. In the view of your center's research, do charter schools generally pick and choose their students in order to boost their test scores? So you're asking me two different things at the same time, so I would like to break those apart. Mm -hmm. um, the data do show that um, that in most parts of the country, um, students who are ELL uh, show up in charter schools in smaller proportions than they do in district schools. That's not true across the board, but in most places that is the case. Um, and there, I think there's a 
uh, and the same is true of special ed, although I think special ed has, has a, a certain contingency that I'll talk about in a moment. Um, I think the idea of school choice is, is really a challenging um, one when you think about requiring schools to ensure that they have representative enrollment in their schools because charter schools don't go and hire students. They don't go out um, necessarily and and try to um, and, and reach out beyond their typical sort of catchment area to try to address students that are not local. And so when families are not used to exercising choice, you could make the argument that charters as a movement need to educate them better, and I would support that. But you can't force folks who don't understand the choice exercise to, to, to move in directions that are not ones that they would choose for themselves. And so I sort of explain the ELL discrepancies as a lack of, of knowledge, lack of understanding, and lack of um, a sort of agency on the part of families to exercise choice at, at zero, regardless of whether they're ELL or not ELL. That's, that's how you get that problem. In special ed, there are a number of reasons why the numbers look different, and uh, I'll just name them quickly. Uh, one, uh, uh, there, are, there are a range of special education conditions that are uh, low incidence but really, really high need. And I think everyone would agree that there are um, levels of expertise and levels of support that are necessary that you wouldn't, even in a district setting, expect every single school to be able to respond to. And so those students with those kinds of conditions go to the special, special ed schools and programs in order to have those needs met. And it makes sense that they would be uh, perhaps concentrated in a few schools and not in every school. The second part of this is that there is some research, not by Credo, but by some other researchers, that suggests that special education referrals, so referrals to assess students, um, are less likely in charter schools. Uh, and partly that's because they have a different uh, perspective about uh, being able to address students' needs without having um, necessarily a wide range of special supports for them. And the other part of that is that there's a different disciplinary expectation that uh, a lot of, of students are not referred for behavior problems because the charter schools believe that they should be managed uh, appropriate. They can be managed and should be managed in the school without necessarily having the student be um, assessed for, for a, a behavior condition. So I explained the differences in special ed partly on the, on the supply side in terms of uh, needing to meet the needs of some students in a different way, and also on the demand side that charter schools don't have as much demand for assessment of kids because of behavior issues. So I would expect the numbers to be different. That's the first question. Then the second question, um, I think, was whether uh, we should mandate sort of representative uh, uh, enrollments. And I think that there are schools that are called diverse by design, charter schools, and they build into their programming a lot of inclusion and diversity and cultural sensitivity. And I think that they are, they are showing that it's possible that 
students of all kinds can be successful in charter schools, not just um, not just students that come out of a sort of a traditional um, academic background. So does well, that answer the to... second part of your question? No, you did. Do you, even with the diverse by design, do you think they're doing this not only for diversity, but to boost their test scores? And are there other schools separate of that who are just cherry picking all the kids to say, yeah, we're picking you because of your score? Yeah. So, you know, we've tried very hard to look at cream skimming or counseling out um, in in the charter school studies that we've done. And I I have to say, I think the the answer, the, the counterfactual isn't zero. Like the comparison isn't no cream skimming and no counseling out. Okay. It's whether they're, and I say that because when we look at other district schools in the same communities, we see the same kinds of changes happening. We see the same, where, where we see any kind of selection um, about students leaving a school, for example, at the lower end of the performance spectrum, which we see very, very rarely in the charter world. When we look at the district schools in the same environment, we see the exact same pattern. And so it looks to us as though there's a sort of a pervasive pattern of, of everybody trying to encourage students to, to go elsewhere. And that that's not necessarily a singular charter issue. It's a more pervasive problem about uh, being able to serve low-performing students well. Great. Appreciate uh, your responses. Maggie, I have to say, just on behalf of my uh, our good friends at the Diverse Charter Schools Coalition, I know that they <laughs> appreciate mention of diverse by design schools and some of the things that are going on there. Um, I want to flip it really quick, just given the given the moment that we are in, to talking just a little bit about the federal politics of charter schooling. So we are in a, in a previous in previous administration and previous uh, federal administration, mm -hmm. there was a lot of support uh, for charter schools. Meaning, if we remember back to, I mean, I referred earlier to change in Massachusetts law. That was the last time we lifted the charter school cap here was because of race to the top. And so it was a required national policy priority back in like 2009 to, to grow high performing charter schools. Do you have any sense of, um, of whether the, the places I'm thinking like Rhode Island, Tennessee, Massachusetts, New York, Ohio, that received this infusion of federal money, did they a see, uh, growth in their charter school sectors in, in B, quality growth by your read? Um, so really interesting question. The, the trajectories of the states that you've mentioned have been um, largely positive until the last couple of years. Um, and so with the exception of Massachusetts and New York, what we've actually seen is these other states have, have started to, to taper off in quality. Uh, and I view that as, as a function of two different things. One, I think that there's, there's a real serious pipeline problem in public education in general, but it's particularly um, sensitive in the charter sector because of the lower levels of funding that charter schools get. And so it's really difficult to hang on to talent for long periods of time. And the second is exactly what you're talking about, that once the, the sort of race to the top dollars you know, ebbed away and once we had... Um, less of a um, strong proponent of uh, building quality within these states, um, you're, you're basically seeing less, less quality coming out of these schools. And, 
and a little bit of, of uh, backsliding. Since we're on a theme of the federal role in the, in the charter school movement, the Trump administration and Secretary DeVos have generally been energetic supporters of charter schools. But the recent budget proposal has caused a firestorm among charter backers because it proposes cutting, cutting charter funding at the federal level. We know that the program started under President Bill Clinton. His administration, every president since then, has pretty much funded at a, at a healthy level charter schools. With what we see right now, is this a sign that the Trump administration is being helpful or possibly uh, hurtful to charter school policymaking? Well, if we're isolating charter schools as a separate topic of conversation, clearly the proposal to consolidate them into a block grant with 42 other programs or 45 other programs um, is, is not going to be conducive to continued focus and attention and support in charter schools. And that's not because the federal government isn't, or the federal administration isn't supportive. It's that when they send those block grants to the states, the states are not going to be carving out the original amount for charter schools that they used to have. They're going to fund those resources into other program areas. Um, and when you have charter schools only reflecting a fraction of all of the students that are served in the state, it's really hard to, to hold the line on defending charter school dollars when there are other, you know, the, the preponderance of students are, are not in charter school. So I, they are basically passing the baton of budgeting down to the states and saying, good luck with that. Um, I don't think that's a helpful stance for charter schools. Um, I, I actually am generally in favor of, of having decision-making and al budget allocations closer to the, um, the, the place where the dollars are going to be spent. But in this particular instance where we're actually talking about handing money over to organizations that largely serve monopolies, I don't actually think that that's a good move. And I'm hopeful that uh, once, once the proposal is actually moved through the budgeting process in Congress, that, uh, that smarter minds will prevail there. One of the interesting things about federal funding is when we say we want to cut or give more money to charter schools, there's either hooray or not. And yet we've had a very large public choice movement in America called magnet schools. And magnet schools for years have been funded by the federal government, often treated differently than charters. But um, appreciate your, your, your response on that. Yeah. Well, and if we could all stay away from our Twitter feeds right now, the, the, the controversy over this is huge. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mackie. Well, so I was going to say that charters were uh, magnets were the original charters. They were intended to provide educators um, a lot more freedom and discretion in the same way that that charter schools initially have started out to be. Um, and obviously, they served a different purpose in terms of trying to stem um, stem and increasing uh, segregation in public in urban public schools, but that autonomy that teachers got in the magnet schools in the early years um, was was eventually um, objected to, and and they were uh, essentially uh, brought back into the fold of traditional district structures and practices and policies, and so while the thematic emphasis of magnet schools continues on, um, they. The established 
group of traditional educators managed to, to basically wipe out the innovation part of running schools in the autonomous way that the original magnets were. So one of the reasons why I think the charter school movement was so intent on maintaining independence from school district institutional structures was to try to put a backstop on exactly that reabsorption that happened in the, mag- in the magnet school experience. Well, Mackie, I have to say that this is like the the coolest part of being able to take part in this podcast is that we get to speak to people like you. And just when you think you've spent your life studying education, living education, doing all this stuff, we get to talk to somebody like you and learn just so many new stuff in the course of like 25 minutes. So thank you so much for being with us today. And dear listeners, she is Margaret Mackie Raymond, the director of the Center for Research on Educational Outcomes at Stanford University. Mackie, thanks so much for being with us today. A pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Take care. Okay, George. So this week's commentary of the week. I'm gonna I'm gonna take this one. We've already talked about Boston. I know I'm very Boston centric. I, I didn't even grow up here, so it's kind of weird. But maybe we'll do, I'll get Detroit centric at some point in time and talk about my talk about my hometown. But this one out of the Boston Globe. <laughs> I just got to say, Boston public schools graduation rates drop. Okay, so not happy about this, but also not surprised. So let's listen to this. The gap between the percentage of black and white students graduating high school in Boston widened dramatically last year as the city's overall graduation rate declined for the first time in more than a decade. Okay, so we got decreasing graduation rates. It's even worse for our Latino students in Boston who continue to record the lowest graduation rates, this is all according to the article, among the system's racial groups. So the portion of Latinos earning diplomas dropped more than half a percentage point in 2019 to 67%. So now in a state where of the same demographic groups, right, you've got um, 74.4% of Latino students statewide are graduating. Um, We've got only 67% of Latinos in the city of Boston. Now, here's the thing. Anybody who knows anything about Boston knows that it is just a, it is a tale of two cities. And the article doesn't say, but I'm willing to bet that these graduation rates, which are astoundingly dismal, um, are still probably masked because I bet they're taking into account some of our very performing public exam schools that kids test into, but yes, they're still public. And we all know that wealthier parents take advantage of the system by having high class private education in the early grades and then sending their kids to these exam schools in Boston, which then, you know, crowds out some um, some children who would other should otherwise have the opportunity who have been in Boston public schools who deserve the opportunity have been performing they're not they're not admitted to these exam schools because you've got these wealthier mainly white kids very few of whom by the way have special educational needs coming in and they're even masking these averages in Boston I bet if we took out the exam schools things might look even worse for our black and Latino students in Boston so this is I have to say. I love this state. I love my Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but we spend so much time patting ourselves on the back again and again. Oh, we lead the nation in NAPE. We're so good at this. We're so good at that. But in the meantime, we are absolutely failing pockets of students. And most of those students are black, are brown, are not speaking English. It's unjust and it's unfair. So here's where I take heart. Um, The article has no quotes from our new commissioner of education. But I do believe that, you know, we've got some new folks in town who are poised, I would hope, 
to make a change in Boston. We've got folks that know how to do it, that know how to turn around school districts. What needs to happen? We probably need to see some schools close, like charter schools close. We probably need to see some school consolidation. We probably need to see an audit of the curriculum and we need greater accountability. There's been a huge debate in the state about just pouring more money into the system. And I hope that the legislature and that our state is gonna hold true to its promise to hold this district much more accountable than it has in the past. And that, Gerard, is my commentary of the week. Very good commentary. What I will say is the number of students of color, also poor white students as well, who struggled in Boston schools has been a challenge for decades. And yes, the exam schools are surely uh, something to take a look at, but we've also got to take a look at the role that parents played in creating what today is the Medco program uh, in Boston, in fact, to get some of the kids uh, to better performing uh, public schools uh, in, the, uh, in, uh, in other areas. So some sad news, but uh, more ways for us to make a difference. And it's also one of the reasons why we have charter schools to help try to close that Absolutely. gap. Absolutely. All right. So for me, I was looking at a lot of tweets, and there's one that particularly uh, caught my attention. It's called Early Risers, and it was a tweet from Ed Nex. And in 2017-18, high schools in four states, Connecticut, Louisiana, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire, reported their average starting time as beginning before 7.45 a.m. And this information comes from a National Center for Education Statistics report that issued new uh, data points in, in its report to talk about when public schools start. And they were using data from, again, 2017-18 from the National Teacher and Principal Survey. So I took a look at the map, and yes, absolutely, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire, all New England places, start much earlier. Uh, the initial thing I wondered is that is that because in, in the winter, may get uh, darker a little sooner, maybe not. But then I see Louisiana, uh, the state where I was actually born, in the uh, South uh, could be a different issue. But what's interesting about this is that it's connected to an earlier article in Education Next where a couple of scholars took a look at trying to link start time and student achievement. So I recommend the listeners go and take a look at the Education Next tweet, but also the article that uh, takes a look at early to bed, early to rise. Uh, will it actually make our students more wise? We'll see. <laughs> I love it. And here, here, I thought it was just like that, that Puritan New England ethic that we had to sort of, you know, like abuse ourselves and get out of bed early as it, my whole thing is just like, man, I gotta take the kids to school so early. It feels pretty unfair in the cold. So our listeners have done it, Gerard. They've made it through another episode of the learning curve. Your second episode. We're so happy to have you with us. And dear listeners, tune in next week when we have, um, I like to call him the king of Twitter, but he's apparently the CEO of Brightbeam, and you'll know him from, from many other organizations. The great Chris Stewart is going to be with us, and um, we're very excited to talk to Chris about all things um, controversial, tweetable, uh, making people wake up in the morning and care about education. How about that? What do you think, Gerard? Excited to hear Chris? I'm excited to hear Chris, one of the smartest funniest, forward-thinking people in the movement. Amen. All right. See you next week.